He called in the middle of the night one night, and he was like, you need to call me an Ambien. She's a nurse practitioner, so she can write script. And he's like, this is an emergency. You need to call me in more Ambien. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Okay, everybody, I have Aaron Horn here today, who, what is your exact title? Community Innovator. Yeah, so for an organization here in Cincinnati called One in Five, which works to eradicate the stigma. Yeah, we work on, really our mission is to promote optimal mental health for youth um, in Cincinnati through stigma reduction and then evidence-based mental health education. Which Um, is huge. Yeah. Working in schools and doing all kinds of Great stuff, which we will talk about. Yeah. But unfortunately, you have experienced behavioral health on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to talk about that. So let's just rewind the clock, talk about your childhood and siblings. and Yeah, let's do it. Um, so I am one of four kids. I'm the second. So I have an older brother. And me, I have sis- my younger sister and then my youngest brother. Um, grew up um, in Powell, Ohio. Small little, well, at the time was a small little farm town. It has since become very big. Uh, and growing up, we never really talked about mental health. Um, I don't. I think that's pretty typical. Sure. <laughs> um, we, you know, I think we all in my family experienced depression and anxiety on different varying levels. I know that I do, um, and my sister definitely does. Um, my dad's had his own bouts with depression and anxiety, especially performance-related. So when it comes to the job and, the job and yeah. doing well and ex- succeeding. Um, and my parents never put pressure on us to, like, be straight-A students. It was this, like, internal pressure that we all wanted to do well. Um, so my mom never really was like, let me see your report card. It was just like, oh, okay, great. You got to be. That's wonderful. So it's a very interesting that we all have this, like, desire to succeed so well or do well. Um, and for me, my perspective of our childhood, very, like, loving parents. My dad traveled 98% of the time. Really? Yeah. So my mom was on, which now that I have kids, I don't know how she did oh, it because there's four of us. Right. Um, so when my youngest brother was born, my older brother was seven. So four kids in seven, eight years is a lot. Um, yeah. and it's a lot of pressure to make sure you're making enough money to feed everybody. Right. Um, so, so for my, but from my perspective, we had an awesome childhood. Like my mom was team mom, um, but never the mom that like called the teacher to yell at the teacher, you know, right. <laughs> just so we're clear. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we all played sports growing up. Um, I do think so. Um, looking back on it, my youngest brother is the one who ended up dying by overdose. Um, and looking back, we've really noticed that he probably started experiencing symptoms of anxiety and depression when he was in sixth grade. Um, but he was the Robin Williams funny guy, made everybody laugh, class clown. Larger than life. Mm-hmm. And so he was hiding a lot. Um, and I think that because we didn't talk about mental health and not because my parents didn't want to, they just didn't know. Um, and my mom's a nurse practitioner, but that's not taught really in 
school unless you go into that psychiatric field. Um, so I think it's like a, you know, it's a small section, but really it's looking at physical health. Um, and at the same time, he didn't know. He didn't know. No. How to articulate. He had no idea. I mean, yeah. What, you know, so there's no languaging there. Right. Yeah. Um, and how do you tell someone my stomach hurts? I think it's anxiety. Exactly. You know? Um, so he ended up getting, he, and he was put on Ritalin at a really young age. Um, like probably in first or second grade. Um, and then my parents ended up stopping it because he said he didn't like how it made him feel. Um, but I always, I, you know, I had no, no judgment to any parent who has to use Ritalin at this day and age. But me personally, I don't think I'll ever put my kids on it because of, I don't know what that did to his brain chemistry as a five or as a seven-year-old. Because it's, you know, a stimulant. Um, sixth grade, he started getting headaches. Um, and my mom's family has a history of migraines. Um, I had gotten some headaches in middle school, which was stress, and so I would grind my teeth. Yeah. Um, so it was, they ended up, you know, it's TMJ, so we started looking at and So I, I didn't end up having um, the medication they did for the migraines, but he, they ended up giving him hydrocodone as a seventh grader because it was, you know, yeah. what, 1990-whatever. Right. And so this was this new fancy drug, and he liked how it felt. Um, my parents did catch him taking it when he didn't need it. And so my dad sat down with them and they talked about how that's not healthy. And, you know, why did you do that? And he was like, well, I liked how it made me feel. But at the time, my dad didn't have much knowledge about addiction. Right. Um, and he didn't know. So he thought they talked about it and he didn't do it anymore. Um, so then fast forward when he goes off to college. Um, and I think that's really when things really got bad. Um, growing up in a, a loving family is pretty protective now that I'm in the mental health field. Right. Um, I know. Um, so he, he was definitely experiencing depression and anxiety, but it's able to be probably warded off a little bit more, um, even though it's still kind of there growing. Um, so then when he went off to college, it just, I think, was rampant. Um, and so, oh, golly, probably 2010 is when he really started spinning out of control. Um, he couldn't sleep. Um, he was, he moved back home and he was in my parents, living in my parents' basement, going to OSU. Um, but it just like wasn't healthy. Um, and then at that point, he's old enough. What By the time my parents figure out what they need extra professional help, he's old enough to refuse it. And so now he, you know, he wouldn't go to therapy because that's for people who are weak, which comes back to the stigma that we all experience. Um, and I can manage this. I've read these books. Um, and so then my parents are going to therapy to try and figure out how to get him into therapy. Um, and so he didn't reach out or want. He did not want any help. He help. was going to figure it out on his own. And if you. Both the mental health and the addiction. And the pieces. addiction piece. And he would never admit that he had an addiction problem because they were prescribed drugs. Right. So he needed his Xanax to help him relax. And he needed the Ambien to sleep. And he needed. Meanwhile, he's abusing. Sure. Um, and. And, you know, I'm out on my own at this point. I've been married and. um so I'm coming, my husband and I are coming home sporadically, probably once a month or so. And each time we would all come home and be together and then leave, that's when he would have a really bad episode. Everyone leaving was somewhat of a trigger. I think it kind of reinforced I'm this failure, this narrative he had written in his head. And but so, the family knows at this point, 
all all of the siblings so are we, aware. But it's also like this elephant in the room sure. that we're not allowed to talk about because who's going to get mad if we discuss this? Um, it's difficult. It's so tough. Um, and so, you know, trying to just be supportive. When, we're, when I was there, I would just, I love you, you know. How's school going? Not that I'm great at all either because I was awkward at this. I'm not educated at this point either. So I don't know how to just say like, it sounds like. (laughs) Right, sure. I think that, (laughs) you know, like all these key words that I've now learned, um, which is unfortunate. Um, So, but he's plugging away and he's like, no, I'm in school. It's going great. And my parents can't see his grades because, again, they're, he's of age, you know. Um, so he's not doing great. He's failing his classes. Um, and so that was like a couple years. It was just this like ugly, he's he's making it, but nobody's happy. My parents didn't feel like they could travel um, because they didn't want to leave him. Um, they were worried about what that might look like. Um, so that started like 2010. It's like when it started. So then, like I said, it was a couple years of just ugly trying to make it, trying to get him help. Um, and then 2014, I ended up having my first son. And I experienced a lot of uh, postpartum anxiety and depression. And so at that point, I, my mom was like, I need to go help Aaron. <laughs> this is not going well. Um, my depression definitely, as everybody's does, if you're not sleeping, it just, my negative thinking spirals, and then I'm just in this ugly rut. Um, and then I also was, like, convinced I was going to kill my kid. I was like, I think he's dying. Like, just the anxiety. of Right. Like, so you had both. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, both. Um, but again, not that educated to say anything about it. I should have been medicated. Um, and so my mom came down for a couple days to help me at night so I could sleep. Um, and my husband was doing great too, but he would wake up and I was like, he can't do it right. You know? And he's like, go back to bed. (laughs) Um, so my mom came to try and help all of us. Um, and that's when my brother, um, really, it just went south. He called, um, golly, he called in the middle of the night one night. He called my mom and he was like, you need to call me an Ambien. She's a nurse practitioner so she can write script. Mm. And he's like, this is an emergency. You need to call me in more Ambien. And my mom's like, no. (laughs) In nicer words, like, tell me what's going on. I can't do that. Um, And so I heard her and I could hear her escalating. Um, So I took the phone. And the police had been to my house a couple times when my brother was um, in the past because my sister had called the cops for them to do a well check on him. Um, and then there was another time where she, my mom had called because he was getting aggressive, um, and they were worried about their safety because he's a six, he was six, two, mm-hmm. and at the time, like 300 pounds, like he was a big guy. Um, and so the police were, you know, so we're on the phone and I take the phone from him and I'm talking to him and I'm, you know, tell me what's going on. And he's, like, crying, sobbing, like, I just can't do this anymore. This is so horrible. I don't want to feel this way. And, you know, I was like, I totally understand. I think we can definitely find some help. We can find someone who knows how to handle all this. You know, tell me what you're doing. And he's like, I'm sitting on the back patio. And I was like, "What? Are, you know, why are you sitting out there? He's like, I have a gun. Oh, and I was just like, oh, oh golly. And I was like, okay, um, well, you know, we want you alive. And so I'm, like, telling him we love him. Um, but at that point, he was just all over the place. And someone has said, and I don't know the 
if this is true, but rapid cycling. So really down, really down. And then like, F you, I hate you. You're a B-I-T-C-A. So like extreme bipolar. It, yeah. Just, just like, it's just like, yeah, in a minute. Right. And I like said something that triggered him. And he, all of a sudden I don't know how he feels and I would never understand. And you're this horrible person. Um, and just like so mean. And I was like, I'm sorry you feel that way. Right. Um, Cause I know he doesn't mean it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while I'm talking to him, my husband was calling the local police, letting them know what was happening and that they needed to go get him. And so I was probably on the phone with him for like 35 minutes while they were getting everybody organized. Um, and so they ended up um, getting – they brought a social worker, which is great. Um, that's a really good – process for someone who's in a mental health crisis. Um, so they had a social worker or a negotiator and then the police officers, and they ended up having to go around to all of our neighbors' houses, surrounding neighbors, and tell them to get in their basement because they were worried that he had a gun and what that would look like. So you're like in this suburb and <laughs> your neighbors right. are being woken up. So this up is and, all prep work. Yeah. Like so that's why I was on the phone for so long. Yeah. So then they had like nine police officers that were surrounding our house. Um and he could tell that something was happening, and he was like, if you call the cops, and he's yelling at me, and I'm just telling him how we're worried about him, and we love him, and we want him to feel better. Um, and then my husband was like, they need you to hang up. And I was like, okay, Michael, someone's going to call you, and I need you to answer the phone. And he's like, if you called the cop, you know, he's yelling, and he's all the bur- all the bad words. Sure. And I was just like, I just need you to know that we love you. And we want you to be here. And when the phone rings, I need you to answer it. And I hung up on him. And then I just sat there like, damn, that sucked. That's crazy. Yeah. And so he did answer the phone. Um, so they, they, so they, the social worker called, called from him. the street or whatever? On a, she was in our driveway. Okay. Um, with the poli- police officers because he's a threat, you know. And um, so they uh, he talked to him and they were able to get him to walk out without the gun um and they were able to take him to um i don't remember which emergency room but one of the emergency rooms for a psych assessment and he had been in the hospital a couple times before um like i said the police had been to our house before and he'd been taken um for psych assessments but what happens if you're really smart is you can tell him all the right answers and so he would never be held for very long because they would do their assessment. In the past, they would do their assessment. And then, oh, well, no, he's not that bad. And it was like, no, he is that bad. Right. So fortunately, this time, um, uh, they he went and they did the assessment. Um, and the nurse called my mom, the psych nurse, and was like, Michael said this and this, and we think that he could be released. And my mom's like, no. He just told you lies. Like, that is not true. And so she just went through it with this nurse. And she was like, that changes things. And I was like, yeah, because he's a liar. Um, And fortunately, at this point, my parents had been working with a therapist who was really awesome on how to help get my brother into a dual diagnosis treatment center. Um, And so that therapist was calling them and telling them what to say and, you know, all the things. Um, And... So they um, got, with their help, the therapist said something that just sticks with you. He told my parents, you can hold his hand to the grave or you can help make him walk through the fire. Whoa. And it was like, 
Because they had been holding his hand to the grave for three or four years, trying to help him by enabling because they're loving him. And they're like, no, you know, you can release them to us. We'll take care of them with the cops. And it's like, no, if he had not been from, you know, somewhat wealthy, loving family, he would have been arrested at least three or four times. Yeah, that therapist said that. And it just hit my parents like, darn, I guess we're going to walk through this fire together. And so the therapist told him, you tell him he can go to this program that you have already found with the, like he recommended, the therapist recommended, and we'll get you out there or you're not coming home. And you're on your own. And you're on your own. And so my brother, my dad told him that on the phone. And my brother is not a nice person right now at this point. And he's calling him every word in the book. And like, you would really let your son be homeless. That's the kind of dad you are. And it's like, that is the kind of dad I am. You're right. Because I want you to get better. Um, and again, you know, not every parent keeps their cool the whole time. So sure. I'm sure there's words. But um, yeah, it was just ugly. So for three days he was in. So he went from uh, the ER to a um, kind of like a Linder Center. but I, And I think it's kind of like that, but up in Powell, Dublin Springs. So he went from... Um, the hospital to a specialty space. And then from there, they were working on getting him out west. And so for three days, he just kept calling and like harassing my dad. Like, this is really what you're going to do. And my dad's like, we're going to change the locks. If you come, we're calling the cops. They're going to release you in two days. That's when your, your stay there is done. And you either go there or you don't come home. And so they just finally stuck with it, which was amazing. Um, Can't fathom how hard that no. is. No, yeah, it's like your kid. Um, and as a sister, I'm like, stick it to it. You know, I'm like mean. I'm like, do this, do this. And I'm, you know, not as understanding because I didn't have a, because I just had a son, so I'm not quite the mom mom yet. Um, but um, they stuck with it, and my mom wouldn't really take his calls because she knew she would cave. Right. Um, and she just, and when she did talk to him, she said, "I'm, uh, you know, your father and I are on the same team." These are your choices. You have to decide. So finally, he gave in, and he went out west. Um, there's a man that will come and pick your kid up and fly them out west. Did you know this? I didn't. Um, like a travel companion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just know. did it with somebody. Did you? Yeah. I had no idea. The, yeah. Um, there's co- companies that, I mean, that's yeah. all they do. That's all he does. This man, this is all he does. Mm-hmm. And so my, because my dad had tried to take him to... Um, a specialty treatment center and my brother just warmed down in the car and he turned around because they're just he's so manipulative he was a really good liar and he'd tell you everything you want and it's your son he's like I, my dad was like I literally will rather pay this person sure because I he will do it and you know my brother's on his best behavior with a stranger and so the guy's like yeah no he was great <laughs> I'm like of course he was because right. he's funny right. and he's great and that's what makes this so challenging mm. The mm-hmm. disease is so challenging mm. is that you're going through this, but you can straighten up and, you know, that's the narcissistic, mm-hmm. uh, sociopathic, you know, we're not dummies, you know, and yeah. we can turn on a shine in a heartbeat. A dime. When you have to. Mm-hmm. And that's what is, it's just so, so tough. So tough because I I love my brother but there are so many things he did and said when he wasn't healthy that are make you so angry. Um, and just the way he would talk about my parents. And I'm sitting there thinking, they are trying everything to help you. Because he's trying to get you on his team. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, I didn't know enough um, to 
be like to know I didn't know I knew a little bit about addiction and I was reading up on it and so it was all fell in line with the, the archetype of if you will of an addict uh, or the stereotype and you know there is addiction in my family's past but again it's like something no one ever talked about so then we wouldn't you know my dad didn't even really know it was like oh well grandpa was an alcoholic because of the war it's like okay but that's probably a little bit true but then there's also something else there right um but yeah, no, so yeah, he would just be so mean. So he was out west. He went, it was a dual diagnosis. So substance abuse, understanding that there's probably underlying mental health issues, which is an amazing way to treat. Um, and then it was a tiered program. So the first step, you're like in the house, you know, like no cell phones, no whatever. And then your next tier, um, you're in an apartment with a couple other people. And you you might not be able to have your own car, and you you still have to do certain things. And then the last tier is really kind of more independent living. So they're trying to like slowly transition you to real life, which is so beautiful because, and that's a long term thing. It's like a 30, 30, 30, 30 type There's of no a, there's not even a time frame around see, it. Yeah, because each person is so different. So my brother was one of their longest. The first time he went through it was one of their longest people in each stage. Because he was adamant that he was not going to get help. He knew more than you. And so Mm -hmm. the one thing my dad said the therapist kept saying to him is, Michael, when are you going to surrender? Because he wouldn't. And so there wasn't a timeline. Um, It's not like you're here for so many days. It's like, well, you're here until you get to the point where we feel like you can manage the next level. So he was in the first part for like a couple months. Um. Because you mean the first part, the, first, the, stage. the first stage yeah. of being in he the center. Yeah, because he would not Go surrender. there, right. And he was fighting them on everything, like wouldn't clean his room. You know, all the things you're supposed to be doing, wouldn't do it. Um, so that was his first time through. So he it took, I don't know, I feel like he was in each, over the whole course of it, I think it was like nine or ten months. Um, and then he went into an apartment um, with a friend. Like a sober living supervised mm-hmm. type well, deal? Well, no, once you made it all the way through and you've like graduated from the sober, li- each of those phases, it had been like nine or 10 months. He was truly on his own. In and the, then you in go into apartment. your own and then you're doing, you're doing, you're expected to do weekly meetings. You have to come in and do drug tests. You're seeing your therapist two or three times a week. So you're still heavily supported, right? but you're living on your own. Um, and so that's where the shitty part about rehab is that he was, you know, prior he was, it was all prescription. Well, now when he wants to relapse, he can't get a prescription. He's been, you know, everybody knows it's on his charts. Right. And so, but he does have a lot of friends who are addicts. And so they know who the drug dealers are. And so he gets a phone number out of his roommate's phone because he knows the dealer's name. So he pulls it out of her phone and calls the guy. And so then after a couple months, he relapsed. Out there. Out west. Okay. So then he fails a drug test or I forget what it was exactly. But he ends up relapsing. um, And my parents find out. And so he goes back into and starts over at phase one at the same place. It was called Ascend. And they, my parents still love this place because they think that the the model they have is beautiful. Absolutely. Um, and it's not like a California. There, I mean, it's expensive, but it's not like those 
astronomical. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, and you you can get some insurance help, but um, still expensive. But it's not like the celebrity lifestyle. Um, so then he went back in, and this time he was a little bit more open to the process. Um, and throughout all of this, each time they would have like family. You know, you can invite your family to sessions. So my dad would fly out and do a session with him. My older brother flew out and did a session. I never ended up doing a session because I was pregnant back to back. Um, And so my parents didn't really want me doing that at that point. But I do wish I had. Um, And I think long term, one of the goals with all of us was to do a whole family session. But we really wanted Michael to get healthy-ish before we, like, all sat down. so anyway, he went through it again, um, and then he moved out. And this time he moved in with roommates who were um, had been sober for a, a little bit longer. Um, and so that was going pretty well. But then something, you know, he would hit a trigger, like a, a fail. You know, he would never tell you what it was. Um, but like he might ask a girl out on a date and he didn't get, you know, he got rejected or he was dating someone sort of and they broke up with him or he got, an, you know, anything that was around failure would kind of trick him up. Um, and so he relapsed again and his roommates walked in on him and found him and said, you're calling your parents right now. And they flushed everything. They supported him in that. And so then he went back through the treatment center again. Um, and he was doing really well, actually. Um, his therapist would call my dad and he wouldn't tell him anything particular. He would just say, we're making good progress or whatever. Right. Um, and then they would have conversations about the next best step for the family and how we could all move forward. And he had an amazing therapist. My parents still keep in touch with him. And so my parents had been out there. It was, this was now 2016. So my parents went out um, to visit him with my sister. It was like September, middle of September. Um, and so they went hiking at Zion National Park um, and were just doing all these really fun things with him. He had lost over 100 pounds um, being out west and just working out right. and hiking with friends. When he got there, he could barely do the hike with the whole group. And then by the end, he was like doing like scaling the mountain. Right. Right. Like he was literally you could see all of his abs. Yeah. I was like, darn, like <laughs> this sounds terrible. But I was like, Dad, could I go for a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> this sounds great. <laughs> I want to do yoga and go hiking. That's and, right. Get in shape. <laughs> yeah, get in shape and have someone help me with my mind. Like, this sounds wonderful. But I'm not an addict, so that's not why, you know, it wouldn't trigger me that way. Um, and so, um, they're, you know, they were out there and they just had a really a good time, you know, family issues here and there. Because Michael still had, still resented my dad for, you know, different things. Um, he didn't, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know if it was the addiction or what, but maybe because he made him go out there. It's all part of the yeah, process. Yeah, it's just really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he was kind of mean to my dad sometimes, but it was still a good trip. Like my parents were happy to be out there um, and see him and see him doing so well. And they were, he was making fun of him because my parents are afraid of heights. So they're like holding on to these yeah. like trails and he's scaling these rocks. And my mom's like, don't fall. You know, the whole mom, like, you're going to get hurt. (laughs) Um, And then he relapsed, which is really, no one really knows. He was at, people saw him at Sober Softball. He did every Friday night. He was on the Sober Softball team with a bunch of his friends. Um, And a bunch of his 
uh, two of his really close friends, he told him he was going to go camping. Um, so he'd call him on Monday. Um, and he left sober softball early because he said he had to study for a test because he was back at school at, out at the U, uh, Utah. And so he left sober softball, and that was the last time anyone saw him. Um, my mom felt weird. She's like, I haven't heard from Michael. This is really weird. And so she called him, and he didn't answer. She texted him. She's like, oh, it just feels off. So she called his therapist and said, you know, I'm just a little worried about him. I haven't heard from him. And he's like, oh, I just saw him, you know, a couple days ago because he saw him every, once or twice a week. And he's like, I just saw him a couple days ago. He's doing really well. Like, I'm really proud of the progress we're making. And so then a, another day went by and he didn't show up for his um, drug test. Um, and my dad was traveling. So he was in Europe and he got a phone call that he had not shown up. And so my dad called my mom. And so my mom called his therapist and his therapist was like, I'll go check on him, which this therapist like loved my brother. He's like, I would never personally go for very, like there's maybe five people that I would go check on. Everyone else I'd call the cops to go do it. And so he got there and he's paying, you know, banging on the door and he tries to open it and there's like something in front of the door. And so he like barricaded himself in his room or in his apartment. Um, and so then at that point, his therapist called the police and he had overdosed. Um, and so then that sent us off into, and I felt horrible for my dad because he was in Europe. So he had to fly 18 hours home and it was just horrible. Mm. So he Whole walked in. terrible. I know. And he walked in and he just started crying. He's like, I've kept it together for 18 hours. And I was like, dad, cry. Who cares? Um, but you know, the manly sure. thing we all do, not we all. Some people do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so then my brother and I, um, my older brother and I planned his funeral. My dad and my mom were like, we can't do this. He's like, my dad walked in. He's like, I have all these things we need to do. And I was like, you know, Matt and I already have it taken care of. And then he was just like, you, his whole body just like slumped. He's like, thank you. Right. Um, so we took care of that, um, all the arrangements. Um, and then, and we had like, we had him cremated. And so they flew his ashes home. So we were able to have them. And then my mom and dad and my sister at the end of October hiked. They flew out to Utah with Michael's ashes and they hiked up to a spot that he loved to hike. And it kind of overlooks the mountains and Salt Lake and buried his little container yeah. <laughs> um, on one of the hiking trails. So every year we fly out and we do the hike. And we bring rocks from wherever we've been that year and put all the rocks on Aww, his little spot. My dad cool. leaves a cigar. We would like to smoke a cigar up there with him, but it's pretty dry in October. And, yeah. <laughs> and we're not going to be the ones that start a fire. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's actually really awesome. I have three boys now, and we take all of them every time. It's a huge pain when they're little, um, especially with the time zone. But it's really important for us right. that that's part of our family conversation now. Like, Uncle Mike died because he was really sick, and, you know, he just didn't have the right help at the right time. And But kids, my oldest was probably four, and, you know, they never leave you alone. So I'm trying to go to the bathroom, and he opens the door, and he's peering at me. And he goes, out of nowhere, he goes, Mom, are you sad your brother died? And I was just like, Ugh. And I just started crying. I was like, yeah, I'm really sad he died. And he goes, okay, and runs off. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, kids. No filter. Yeah. yeah. Just like. Are you sad about that? 
Yeah, I'm really sad about that. It also shows that it's on their mind too, mm-hmm. in in what however much they can yeah. understand. And we're processing it all together. And so, did you guys, as a family, go through any sort of like structured healing therapy. therapy? We went to right after he passed. We went to one session with a therapist. Um, and you know how they say therapy's like dating. I don't think it was a great fit for yeah. our whole family. Um, I personally reached out to a therapist to help me process that a lot of the trauma. Cause I mean, it was a four or five years of oh. mom and dad calling. And when they call, you're like, Oh, is this going to be about Michael? Um, and even, you know, I found out he died after yoga class and I went to go to my car and I saw like 20 missed calls and my heart just dropped. Cause Did I you knew know? Like, you don't have 20 missed calls from your mom, your dad, and, you know, all these people. And so I called my dad, and he didn't answer. I called my sister, and she didn't answer. And I called my older brother, and I was like, hey, I saw I had a missed call. I was like, did it happen? And he was like, yeah, he's gone. And it's like, huh. Um, But the thing they don't really tell you is that there's, like, a sense of relief, too. That sounds really horrible. You know, for my brother, too, right? Like, he's been fighting this he was in for hell. 10 years. Right. Right. Um, He was fighting his depression and anxiety by himself and self-medicating. And then it got really bad. And then he's beating himself up for being an addict, even though he won't admit it. And how horrible am I that I'm one of these drug addicts, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Right. Who who does this? No one else in my family. Black sheep. It's tough, man. Yeah. It's real shit. Um, That's for sure. I wish that he was here, but I know that he's at peace. But processing through that takes time. So I did reach out to a therapist, and I did um, EMDR. Have you heard of this? Absolutely. And I'm, I, like, I'm, I'm wondering whether I I should do it or not. But amazing. somebody did it when I was in rehab. I heard that it, it's for traumatic experiences, like specific. Anyway, this yeah. girl went for a session who had been through a lot and came yeah. back after one session was like, I mean. Changes it, you. Yeah. Like it's gone. Like these feelings are. Reprocessed. Right. Yeah. So EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Um, And so the idea behind it is that when you're in deep sleep, REM, your eyes are going back and forth and you're literally processing your day away, getting rid of all the negative emotions and taking the learning. And so um, when you have a traumatic experience, your body doesn't know what to do with it. So it kind of like puts it in a little capsule as she explained it to me. And it just like is floating in your brain. So when you have a trigger, it releases those emotions that you couldn't deal with. But she talked about big T and little t trauma. So you could have big T as your textbook trauma, like assault, you know, all that. And then little t is going to be some of those smaller things that felt traumatic to you. So I went in to deal with, you know, my brother dying and that was like one session. And then she's like, all right, what else? And I was just like, I'm good. Did it work? Yeah, it worked so well. Did it really? One session? One session. We did like maybe one or two sessions with my brother. And we processed through, um, like, me getting the phone call at yoga. Like, I can tell all of that without crying. And it doesn't mean I'm not sad anymore, sure. but it doesn't light me up. Like, right. I'm not, like, welling up. I'm still very sad. Um, but because I think I was able to process, you know, it wasn't my fault. You know, you everyone right. feels that I should have done this. And it's like, okay, well, we could say that about any situation. And so you can remove some of those feelings of guilt and maybe shame for not doing something. Um, wow. It's it's amazing. So then we got into like other, like some of my own personal stuff. And I'm like, well, this isn't why I came here. 
but found it's a, yourself not wanting to dig like, unpack. It was just like, well, that's that's I'm fine. You right. know, you start oh, yeah. to feel yourself do the same thing that right. I gave my brother. Yeah, crap for not doing, but I did do it. Um, and um, and that was helpful as well. Yeah, like we worked through. Why am I trying to always be perfect? Why am I always trying to like prove to people that I'm smart enough? Like, and that goes back to being um, in grade school, you know, and all of these different things. Mm. Um, and so it it really was good. Um, and then she's, you know, she told me too, you know, you're going to come across t- times when you feel yourself, you feel those feelings, like maybe that anxious feeling, or you notice something, and she calls follow the smoke smoke trail. When was the last time you felt like that? And then make a session and we can reprocess it. Um, but, she, you know, she would have you do, your eyes would follow her hand or there would be buzzers in your hand. And these memories that, I have a terrible memory, but these like thoughts and this memory would just pop up into my head. And I was like, where did that come from? I haven't thought of that. Like stuff from third grade, right. like sitting on the carpet. Like I haven't thought about sitting on the carpet in third grade and ever. And so you just reprocess all those emotions you felt and it was fascinating so i recommend it but you do have to be in a safe place right because if your feelings of trauma are brought up and you don't have healthy coping skills so like my brother probably not the best choice if he's not in a healthy place because his coping skill was drugs so you have to be careful that you have a lot of healthy coping strategies in place so that was like during the intake she did with me yeah was um you know, when you're stressed, what do you do? And I was like, I call a friend, I go to yoga. And she's like, okay, like those are healthy habits. Um, but like for your person, you know, in rehab, if you're in a facility, you're in a, a healthy environment that can help you and support you in that right. way. So my brother's therapist told my dad when I was telling him about it, he told my dad, he goes, Randy, if you ever do EMDR, you better be in an inpatient because <laughs> you're going to need a lot of support. And it was like kind of joking, but not. Right. <laughs> so you do have to be careful. Um, but yeah, so I did do that. Um, my sister has gone through therapy. Um, I don't know about my older brother. Um, that's kind of, I talk about it with him and I tell him like my reason and hope that he'll do that. Um, my dad is, I'm just going to be sad. That's just how it is. Um, and so I keep pushing my dad and my mom. My mom went to a couple sessions, but again, I don't know if it was the right fit. Um, the person you're seeing before trying to work through stuff with my brother might not be the best grief counselor. Sure. But it was a relationship she had, so I get that. Um, so, again, I've just – the each individual has done it, but not as collectively as a whole. But you go collectively every year. Yeah. Which, that, that's yeah. an absolute form of yeah. therapy. So, I mean, it's it a good. slow go, but, uh, well – terribly sorry that that happened i mean it is a it's such a vicious thing even though he started to seem like he was starting to come around at least asking for help and things like that yeah he was it is really you know it's the thing that is hard with people who are addicts um is that i call it two different people so i was like my you know michael that i know and love and michael the addict and we all hate michael the addict because he's a horrible person and we love the Michael that we know and love. Like, we love the Michael that's the real Michael. Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. And he could be an amazing person. He would stand up for um, the underdog. Um, he loved on people. If he knew that someone was hurting and he could see it, because I think he himself was hurting, he would kind of carry that person with him. Um, but not he, he didn't show that side of him very often. 
Um, and I think it's because he was deflecting a lot. Um, and then that addiction does grow. And it, it, I mean, it does. It rewires your brain chemistry. We know that. Um, and it takes years to undo that. Um, and so it's just, yeah, it's really hard to have, you know, that he relapsed. And I think, you know, relapse is a really, now that I'm in the mental health advocacy field, relapse is a huge trigger for suicidality. Um, because You mean dealing with the fact that you've relapsed? Like as a like person, he, he probably had a lot of suicidal thoughts because he's relapsed. And so what does that mean? Mm. I have to do all of this again. Um, another failure. I'm never gonna, you know, and those absolute thinking. Sure. Um, really uptick. Um, so yeah, it's just a, it's, it's not good. Right. Um, but, um, I know some people don't love when people find silver linings, but I am a silver lining person. Um, I'll let other people not have their own silver linings, but for me personally, I have to find purpose for the pain. Um, and so, I think the greatest gift we're getting out of Michael's um, struggles and his challenges and his mental health journey is that our family can now talk openly about it. Um, and so we haven't told my kids about drugs. <laughs> like five. Right. Um, but we've talked about his brain was sick. Um, and sometimes when people's brain aren't aren't doing well and they don't have help, um, they don't know how to say it. And we just need to make sure if your brain doesn't feel good that you tell us and um, and we've put – my kids are in play therapy, which I never would have thought of um, before Michael, um, just to help them with some of the anger that you see. Like, they don't know what to do with their emotions. Um, and I love Daniel Tiger, but, he, like, I can only watch so much Daniel Tiger. Um, and, you know, it's not going to help me in practice. Right. Um, and so just doing that early and starting, even though there's nothing really, really, quote, unquote, wrong with my kids, I think it creates a baseline of we'd get – professional help anytime um we and so when we went i told them i told my kids i said you know just like we go to the doctor every year and they make sure we have all of our vaccines and our you know well check make sure we're gaining weight we're gonna go see you know our play doctor and she's gonna help us with our brain and they're like okay like not a big deal right um and some really cool stuff has come out of that play therapy that we're doing is really about building up the child parent relationship um, and so what we do is focus on the language that we use to help him understand what he's feeling. Um, and then if I say it wrong, he's quick to correct me because I was like, well, I don't want to project what I think. And she's like, oh, don't worry. He'll tell you if you're wrong. And he does. I'm like, I think you're feeling, no, I'm not. <laughs> hey. Um, and just, yeah, language. Um, so if you're, instead of asking him a question during play therapy, because um, what she said is kids will want to answer you and, like, have a, the right answer. Um, so instead of asking a question, I say, I'm wondering why, whatever. And that word, I wonder, makes it so it's not – they don't feel the, the desire to, like, please you with an answer. And so sometimes I'll say that and my little boy will go, I'm wondering that too because he doesn't know. Right. Whereas before he would have said, I don't know. And I would have been like, you have to know. you know, And it would have been an argument. And so then I can actually see into kind of his brain a little bit. Um, and it's been amazing um, with some of the anger he was expressing and the feelings of not having enough attention because we've had three kids in a smaller amount of time. Um, and then we started it with my second son. And fascinating. Um, so my second son, the first session we did, 
he asked me for probably two or three minutes what my oldest son did when he was in there because he can't do anything on his own. And so he's like, well, what did James do? He's like, whatever James wanted to do. But what did he do? What did Mm -hmm. he play with? Like, whatever he wanted. And then he sat in my lap and said, I'm feeling scared. And I was like, whoa. And so then he got up and he ran down the, it was in our house, we were doing the session and he got up and ran down into the guest room and jumped on the bed and then came back in and started playing. And like, that was his release. His anxiety release was moot because that helps us with movement or movement helps us. And he came back in, but it was like, wow, you really rely on your brother because they're pretty, really close in age. They're under two years apart. And he just does whatever the older one says. And so it's like, we're doing play therapy more (laughs) to force you into figuring it out. But yeah, Yeah. so those are the the silver linings with Michael passing is being able to, as a family, have conversations about mental health, um, being educated so that we can talk about signs and symptoms and talking about wellness, um, not just how not to hate life right don't just tell me like when you hate life but how can we create a life where we we know how to do things to help us feel better so how can we thrive instead of just survive right and so that's been great so what about another silver lining is one in five and your involvement when when did you decide that you wanted to become an advocate yeah so i was a teacher for five years um i was in the classroom and my brother was went to rehab in 2014 And then in 2016, I was a business teacher. I was teaching a new class. I had the outline, and there's not a lot of um, guidelines. There's state standards, but there's not like a set curriculum when you're teaching a business class. Um, And so we just had different segments. So they were going to do a marketing project. And so the marketing project was going to be advertising for the Warrior Run, which is um, in Marymount. And the Warrior Run is one in five's big 5K fundraiser. Um, And so they were, as a class, they had to figure out how they were going to get the school to win the Warrior Run High School Challenge. Um, And then they, as they were trying to do that and we're talking to different people, one of the questions came up was, what do you do with the money that you win? And we're all looking at each other like, we don't know. And so we talked to the counselor and they're like, we're still trying to figure out what to do with this money. Um, because at that time, one in five was just starting to emerge. And so my boss had not taken it full time. And so she was just using it as a fundraiser to help create funds for schools to use. So now we have more of a roadmap of what programming you can use. Um, but at that time, it was still starting out. So we sat down with the counselors and they didn't really have a set answer. And so they decided they wanted to use some of the money to do a uh, mental health awareness week where they talked in English classes about different illnesses um, and then how what the resources were in class or in our school system. Um, And so a piece of that was people telling their individual mental health journeys. So we filmed um, a couple different students telling their journey. And from there, um, my boss, Nancy Miller, who run who started and is the executive director for one in five, saw the videos and liked them and asked me to do a couple for her second year Spring for Life fundraiser. And so we put a couple of those together to show to everybody at the fundraiser. Um, And then people just kept showing up to want to tell their story. So I kept filming them. Um, So I volunteered for about a year or a year and a half, and then a position opened up. Um, And so I took the position just to see um, what that would look like. Um, And so throughout this process, I've become more and more educated 
um, around it. And so now I'm doing, I still do the video storytelling, um, but I'm in charge of um, helping facilitate two of our peer-to-peer evidence-based education programs. Um, And I help with Youth Mental Health Innovation Challenge. And then I'm a co-facilitator for the Youth Council for Suicide Prevention. And then, of course, it's a small nonprofit. So whatever else comes up. Sure. But it's starting to get, I mean, it's starting to get some legs. Yeah. For sure. Because, oh, yeah. And we talked about this a while back, but uh, education in schools and programming in schools yeah. for suicide awareness. And because we've, you know, we've talked about our, you know, having young kids and- yeah. There's no, you know, middle school, we got to be even elementary at some level, got to be talking about mental health and what it is to be a human being. And Yeah. So we firmly believe in like the upstream idea. Um, So a lot of suicide prevention lives in intervention, um, which is not to say that's not good work. We have a program called Signs of Suicide. That's a universal suicide screener that we recommend to schools. Um, And so there is a lot of intervention, but what we really want to do, especially with our younger kids, is that upstream prevention. So instead of waiting until kids are at the waterfall where they're feeling suicidal, how can we keep them from falling in the river? So how can we wrap them up in like different wellness and resiliency, teaching them these wellness and resiliency tools so that as they start to notice something, they can name their feeling or they notice it and they can name it and they can get help and or use these tools. so they know how to take care of themselves. And I think we hear self-care in our society and people think, oh, a bubble bath. Exactly. Like, a, you know, maybe I read a book. And those, you know, that is relaxing. You're right. But when we say self-care, one of my friend's therapists talked about self-care is really parenting yourself, putting yourself to bed early, putting your phone down, going on a walk when you don't want to because you know it helps you, um, having a gratitude um, practice or journaling, um, connecting with a family friend or, you know, having a mentor. There's so many things that self-care is. Um, and so I almost like the idea of like parenting yourself. Um, if you saw your kids starting to, you know, escalate, what would you do? You would tell them to do, at least for me, I tell them to do breathing. We need to get a healthy snack. We're going to take a rest. And then maybe we go on a bike ride because we know going outside helps. So it's like doing that to yourself. But we have to teach these little kids those skills. Um, so and, and also when they get into middle school, you do have to start saying, these are some of the signs and symptoms. If you notice this, you need to come tell me. Tell it, and that's what we talk with, with the peer-to-peer program, tell a trusted adult. Um, because you're young. You can't figure this out on your own. Even an adult can't figure it out on their own. Right. You need somebody to help you. Um, and that's another beauty of the, this programming is not only caring for yourself, but being able to care for your fellow student. Yeah. If I see my friend showing signs of, you know, mental distress or yeah. whatever uh, through the, the, the education, yeah. being able to reach out and say, Hey man, yeah. what's, what's going on. And, and that is such a huge thing, especially when you're an adolescent. It's such a rough time when you're 11, 12, 13, when, when stuff is starting to get real and people are mean. And mm-hmm. now with social media and the 24-hour you know, news cycle. Everything. Yeah. So that's – it's just and again, amazing. Absolutely. Because they, you know, they need to know signs and symptoms for themselves, for others. And they also need to know, like you said, like, hey, can you tell me what's going on? And then they need to know how to what, – what are some things we could try? What are some tools? And if those tools don't work – 
then we need to tell a trusted adult. Um, and so just creating a holistic education plan for students that ranges from that super preventative to that intervention piece is, I think, where you're going to see really great success in the mental health field um, when it comes to education. Um, because, you know, even a student who may never be suicidal is going to experience times in life when it's really not great. And so that student, too, needs to know, how do I keep myself healthy? Because if that student doesn't know how to do those things, they could end up feeling suicidal because they don't know how to get themselves out of this rut, um, even if it's not. Because, you know, we know mental health challenges can be situational. It can be chemical. It can be a combination, um, whatever. So, but it is mental health. I mean, yeah, you know, suicide is, is part of the concentration, but this is how to navigate life Yes. Uh, in between the ears. It, yeah. And it's it, it gets to be very difficult. Like I think about it as like suicide is like the most unhealthy, right? Whereas then there's when you think about mental health on a spectrum, suicide is super, super unhealthy. Um, but you can be very healthy or you can be like not super great and just a little down and you don't really understand it and you don't know how to get out of it, but you're not suicidal. You know, so there's this huge spectrum, and we can swing on this spectrum throughout our day, <laughs> throughout our life. Um, like, we're in a pandemic, right? And so my anxiety has definitely increased. Um, and so that's up to me, right? And, like, I start to notice that. I can feel, okay, like that heavy feeling on my chest. I'm just not sleeping super well. And so I need to reach out to my doctor and my counselor and say, like, this is what's going on. Um, and so I, you know, I started my medication again. Was that like a while back after I, my son, I was like, oh, I'm feeling great again. Uh, do I need my medicine? Do I not? I don't know. Let's see. And now it's like, nope, you need it. No. Like, yeah, that's and it's fine. okay. And that's okay. Right. And I'm not going to be upset about it. It's just, I told my husband, it's like, oh yeah, by the way, I started taking my medicine last week. He's like, okay, cool. And he's like, eh, yeah, not a big deal. Um, so again, Anything can swing us on this mental health spectrum. And so being aware, I think, like we were talking about, right, just knowing. Um, and people think mental health is mental illness, and it's different. Mental health is something everybody has. If you have a brain, you have mental health. Mental illness is just when you're sick. Right. Just like if I have a cold or maybe I have diabetes, there's different levels of illness. Right. Um, and you just said, you know, the conversation, you know fostering the conversation mm -hmm. not not only do we get you know we educate these kids and and give them the tools but like you said navigate you know throughout your day but being able to talk about it mm -hmm. openly about your struggle and tell your story and when and you, each other know your story when you have a flare up or something mm -hmm. I, i'm i'm feeling like this mm -hmm. and for another peer to not only be able to listen and understand and comprehend but then empathize yes it's a game not changer judge right? right so my boss always and you know it's our our tagline stop the stigma start the conversation um, but we also just talk about normalizing that conversation it doesn't have to be weird it doesn't have to be awkward um and there's so many tools out there um that you can if you go to our website we have a ton um one in five dot org resources um we have a ton for covid we have a ton programmatically, you can see what we're doing with schools programmatically. Um, so if you're looking at evidence-based programming, but if you're just a parent and you want to know more information, there's so much on the website. Um, and even just Google, right? <laughs> it's this amazing tool. Um, but how to use certain words, how to use words with your kids too. Like that, I'm wondering, 
that changes things. So these like slight tweaks in how we talk to people. So instead, if you know your friend or your sister or your mom is having a mental health struggle, instead of like saying, how are you feeling? Well, the answer is probably crap because they're in the middle of a mental health crisis. So maybe instead of saying, how are you feeling? We can say, I'm wondering where you are today. I wanted to check in and you could like, I know parents who've done color codes with their kids and they have like a system. Um, You can do emojis. Like, there's all these different ways to say, where are you on this really good to horrible? Okay, you're horrible. What can we do today to try and move you up one peg, right? So then it's not, instead of just living in this awful space, we can look at what can we do. And it might reach out to your counselor again to have an extra session. It could be, you know, going on a walk, going on a bike ride. It could be baking. Like, I, you know how everyone's, like, baking bread in the pandemic? Because that's really healthy. It's cathartic for a lot right, of people. sure. And the, the quarantine 15, because food tastes good. Absolutely. You know? um, so there's just so many different ways um, we can practice wellness right. and check in with each other, like exactly. you said. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I urge everybody to go check out one in five.org. It's a fabulous organization and uh, doing great stuff. Thank you. Uh, for spending some time with me today and your courage to tell your Thank story. You. I know you've done it dozens of times, but uh, it means a lot to me and it means a lot to the, the people that will listen. Thank so. you for doing this amazing podcast. I love listening to it. Um, when I steal time for walks on my, you know, we all have to take care of ourselves. So I'll go, I'm going on a walk. Well, thanks for listening. It's awesome. I yeah. tell everybody about it. Yeah. So, Well, continue the good work and uh, wish you the best. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.